In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world. We read from the Apocrypha this morning. And we pull back and we see the whole creation story encapsulated in a couple of verses. For God created us for incorruption and made us in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world and those who belong to his company experience it. God made us eternal beings. He called us into being, if you like. God gave us a vocation when we started our career, a divine vocation. But when the devil set foot through his emissary, we got a career instead of a vocation, a human career as well. God made us eternal beings, setting us in a perfect but vulnerable creation, fragile, susceptible to harm, harm which came through a question. Did God really say? And the question, unanswered still, it plagues us, led to doubt. And the first human pair became obsessed by the need for the one thing they hadn't got. The one thing they hadn't been given, which now becomes the one thing they have to have, come what may cost what it will. Forget all they've already got, all they've already been given to take care of, that is their calling, to take care of all of creation. They risk it all for the sake of the one thing they haven't got. The writer of the Wisdom of Solomon calls this envy, the devil's envy of God. We go a little outside of what we may comfortably do when we're making doctrine, but it's not a strong connection to make the human envy of God have its origin in something superhuman. Indeed, the devil's envy of God becomes our envy of God. And of anyone who has anything that we haven't got, that would be God and that would be many other people. So death entered the world. Let's connect these things. One early homilist says, and I quote, Do you see the extent of the harm caused by this? It made the one given the privilege of immortality undergo death. The enemy of our salvation, however, introduced the envy characteristic of himself and caused the first formed human being, immortal though he was, to come under sentence of death, whereas the caring and loving Lord, by his own death, once again bestowed upon us immortality. That's the whole story right there. So envy caused deception, deception caused disobedience, And disobedience caused death. What is envy? It is that feeling of discontentment or resentful longing, as the OED puts it. A longing, a yearning that burns deep and burrows deeper within us. At the same time, infecting everyone around us. It's very contagious. 
aroused by that one thing that someone else has got, and with that, a feeling of lack, the desire to have that thing, that quality, possession, or other desirable attribute that belongs to that someone else, and to acquire the means of getting it, the power, the force, the ability to get that person out of our way so that we may have our way with them to get what we want from them. René Girard, in his mimetic theory, suggests that envy goes even further than this. We want what others have. We want to be what others are. And if we didn't want what they have and what they are, they wouldn't want it either. What good would it do them if no one else wanted? What power would they have conferred on them? What status? Thus, St. James' anxiety over those who have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts, the striving that leads to open conflict in the world and in the church, for envy leads to conflict. And when we finally get what we're after, if we can, we discover that it's really not worth having to begin with. Junk food. And we hunger and hunger and hunger, as I say again and again, for more and more of that which satisfies us less and less, going onward and onward and onward for more and more and more. Now, the striving finds its way right here in the church. We all strive to be our best, especially in the church. And that brings out the worst in us. We have a way of finding ourselves falling short, projecting that on others, crystallizing into factions, canvassing one another as we look for loyalty. Ambitious people find weaknesses to exploit, and there are plenty of them. And soon the church is seething in envy, in conflicting contingents, if not in outright conflict. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. James says, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There is our undergirding for the wisdom of Solomon. It is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That being said, St. James speaks with real psychological insight. It reminds us that the conflicts among the members of the group start within the individuals, interdividuals, actually, as Girard calls us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. Always that one thing coming back to haunt us, and when we get it, being replaced by something else. You are double-minded, as he will say. There are mixed messages from the world distilling mixed motivations within us. Now, I will say, stop a moment. What is so mixed about this endless concatenation of needs which we don't really need, of things that the world tells us which we must have, which we labor getting and spending all that we have, all our powers to acquire only to discover we've been had once again. That's fine, and that's got its own inner harmony. Is that the conflict of which he speaks? It's a bigger conflict than that. As St. Augustine says in our collect, Almighty God, you have made us for yourself, 
and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There is nothing we can pursue that this world can give that will ever give us peace, that will stop the endless cycle of desire, imitation, and violence that that conflict produces. We, as God's creatures, as we started this little talk, are really only built to have one desire, the desire for God and the desire for all that comes from God, which it has been given to us to care for. And God, the Holy Spirit, alive and well in our hearts, gives us the desires that lead us to exercising our stewardship, our ministry. How to cleanse, then, this infusion of worldly dissatisfaction, this constant restless heart hunger of which Augustine spoke, which is down there as well. How to filter it out, how to quiet it, calm it down, put it at rest, at least let the sludge sink to the bottom, and make the space in which the harvest of righteousness must first be sown. How to quell the full rebellion which is breaking out within and against God as the evil one fans the flames and causes us to sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind instead. Yes, conflicts can get out of hand. And when the low-pressure systems produce cyclones, I will follow with a verse that we cut out of our reading. I'm not quite sure why. When those systems produce cyclones, we discover the source of our problem. James asks, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's putting it very strongly. I'm suspicious when they cut things out. But I think I have my reasons for putting it back in. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I mean, it's a little extreme, surely. That's what he's saying, however. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoa. Do you suppose, or do you suppose, this is the verse, it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, any of you who have sought the scriptural reference for this scriptural quote down, you will realize that we are still looking for the piece of scripture which gives us this quote. We have no idea where it is. And we don't know, however, even what the quote means can be translated two ways, but it's key to this whole thing. God jealously yearns for the spirit that he made to dwell in us. Maybe that means the Holy Spirit. Maybe that means our spirit. And that jealous yearning is a kind of zealous brooding over it. Or the spirit God caused to dwell in us yearns jealously, yearns enviously. The spirit that spirit that has turned to evil still burns away, contaminating everything we do. However we follow it, we are led to the places where this reference finds its reference in sections like Romans 6, 6 to 8 and Galatians 5, 17, 21, where the Apostle Paul, no stranger to James, sets out the battle that is going on inside. And there really is a battle going on in our heart, in our guts, in our minds. And he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, capital S, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, all of them, everything we've made in enmity with God, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The way to resolve a rivalry, if you like, between God and the devil, between things that look like God and look good for us, that this world provides, and the things that God really provides for our good, has this rivalry has gotten out of hand. It's a rivalry between spirits, only one of which is able to listen and to attend, for that spirit is the one that is from God, and that is God. And that spirit always shows us Christ. Like a floodlight illuminating a building, so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, shows us our way to see Christ, to follow Christ, to be Christ, inasmuch as we may in this world. And the Spirit doesn't show us Christ over and against us, so much as he shows us the way Christ would walk if Christ were in our shoes now, and we in his, and we were in Christ, which he is, and which we are. So we surrender our desires to him, and we experience the uncanny sense that indeed our restless heart may be skipping a beat, but in an eerie calm, the calm at the eye of the storm, we are getting very clear navigational signals. Desires are coming into our heart from outside. Desires which, given a chance, can speak very clearly to us. And what we want, suddenly, is what Christ wants. And what Christ wants for us is nothing so much as for us not just to want, but to act. If we can take even that first step, where Christ wants us to go, and it can seem like a huge step at times. He will show us the way and give us the power to do what he calls us to do. But we need for that the heart that attends like a child, in total trust, in total dependence. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he takes a child and puts the child in the midst of them and says to them, whoever receives this child, then you know the rest. And the child stands in this line, the father to Christ, Christ to the child, to us. He's asking us for a state of dependence and trust that what he is calling us to do is the one thing that will give us the rest and the peace that this world can. And it's not a matter of becoming master of this world or even becoming master of all those desires that have mastered us, but of letting them go, of setting our ambitions not to the model of those great people who've made a name for themselves in this world by accumulating power and wealth and status. It's to let that go indeed. It's not to be set apart from the world and from the kingdom of God as they are by their perpetual restlessness. It's rather for us to see ourselves as a part of something greater. And all 
Those who have followed Jesus have done so not in the need to create for themselves a monument on earth or to make themselves something to be envied by others, even to make themselves an example for others. That's the last thing on the mind of the saints. It's simply to become part of something bigger and greater, to see a need, to move, to work, to fulfill the desire of the God who wants that need met, and to give their lives for the glory of God and the good of God's people. I'm done. But once again, coming up, I've seen that the hymn has said better and with more brevity than all I've just taken all your time to say. And I'm going to look to that last verse again. If you want to open it and look at 240, as long as you can, it will do you no end of good. It says everything about who we are and where we're going and whose we are. Hymn 240, breathe on me, breath of God, breathe on me, spirit of God, fill me with life anew, with new life, that I may love what thou dost love, and do what thou wouldst do. Breathe on me until my heart is pure, until my will is one with thine, until there's nothing I want for myself that you don't want for me and for this world. To do, to do your work when I am able, and to endure those dark and challenging moments when I can't, and keep breathing on me through this mortal life until I become with every breath more and more yours, less and less me. Because in the role that Jesus has for each and every one of us, as much as we may seem to be giving up everything that is us to him, He will have us do things that no one else can do unless we do them and no one else will do. So Lord Jesus, take us, use us, make us your own every day in ways that we cannot imagine. Amen.